We're beginning a, a new series this morning. We've entitled it Perfect Timing. How many of you think that sometimes it feels to you like the Lord's timing's off a little bit? Anybody? How many of you found that his, he, he just won't do what you want when he wants you to do it? Amen? I want you to know that whether you think that or not, the Lord has, say it with me, perfect timing. And there are moments in the Lord's perfect time that are bigger than you think they are. And this morning, I want to start this series called Perfect Timing. And we're going to do this a little different. We're going to use a lot of stories of people in the scriptures. I want to tell you a story about somebody in the Bible. You may think that you know this story, but I bet there's some pieces of it that you don't know. And I want us to examine the fact that there are moments that are just a lot more significant than you can feel in the moment. I think we're living in one. So many of us, when we look at the things going on in COVID, you only think, ah, I got to wear a mask. Worst thing ever. We're, we're having to go to online schooling. Worst thing ever. Can't get together with, in the restaurants. Like, worst thing ever. Joe, it's just the worst thing ever. Everybody say it. Say it like that. Worst thing ever. We didn't get to have our graduation. It was the worst thing ever. Amen. My kids are going to be at home every day for school. It's the worst thing ever. <laughs> anybody with me? Can anybody think of anything that you've had to endure because of COVID? And it was the worst thing ever. I had to put my wife in an ambulance. They drove off. Worst thing ever. Say it with me. It feels good to say it. Shake your head when you say it. Worst thing ever. Amen? Some of you didn't say that. All right. I think there are moments in life, and if we're not careful, we'll let that attitude so fill our minds that we will miss what is actually the providential plan of God working out in our life. When it may not be the worst thing ever, it may actually be an opportunity of unscaled proportions. But if we only walk into it with the worst thing ever attitude, we're going to miss out on what God might be doing in a divine moment. I'm convinced I wasn't at the beginning. I just started off with worst thing ever mindset. But I'm telling you, you are living right now in the divine moment of God. The question is, because every divine moment has this amazing potential. How many of you know that God moments have incredible potential? But every divine moment has a phenomenal potential both ways. It can either be the providential hand of God to move forth his kingdom in the world and in your life and in the life of the church, or it can be used of the enemy to steal, kill, and destroy, and all of that is in your and my hands. What's it going to be today? You're going to step into the divine moment of God, which is much bigger than what you can see. It always is. Did you know that the divine moment of God is always bigger than you can see in a moment? Wouldn't it by definition have to be? I mean, if it's God doing it, wouldn't it have to be bigger than what you and I can see in a moment? Come on, say amen. amen. And I'm, we're going to look at a number of stories, and in every one of them, none of them could see the potential of the moment that they were in. None of them. We're going to start this morning with the story of Esther. 
Some of you think you know the story of Esther, but I bet there's some things that you haven't seen before. Let me start in Esther chapter 2 this morning. Let's read verses 16 and 17. We won't read the whole story, but I'm going to tell you the highlights of it. Esther, beginning in chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, it says, And when Esther was taken to King Asherah into his royal palace, in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all of the other virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Father, this morning, I pray you do something that I can't possibly do, Lord. Open our eyes to the power in a divine moment. While we may not be able to see the whole, the whole plan, the whole journey, the whole roadmap, help us to live each day like we are living in the divine providence of God because we are. And Father, let us no longer let the enemy steal and kill and destroy the potential of what you might do because we are distracted by the circumstances of our day. Yeah, we have masks on. What will that be eternally? Yes, there are limits. We have ropes on every other row here, Father. Maybe, just maybe, the fact that we have developed the streaming advent, the, 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 the whole platform of streaming, maybe we are reaching more people than we ever have before. Maybe because we stream Sunday night prayer instead of doing it live in the building. There are many of us who think, I don't like that. I want to get back together. Well, Father, maybe your plan was for us to stream it all along. Open our eyes, Lord. In Jesus' name. Everyone said? I had a thought that I hadn't thought of until just that moment when we were praying. How many of you think persecution is a fun thing? We'd call it something else if it was fun, wouldn't, wouldn't it? Hey, birthday party fell upon the church. Hey, all-you-can-eat buffet fell on the church. Hey, fellowship dinner fell on the... No, we call it persecution for a reason. Do you know what it was that launched the New Testament church into all the world? Persecution. They were still meeting in Jerusalem by the time Acts chapter 10, 12, 11, all that happens. The Lord said, go into all the world, preach the gospel. They're all still meeting in Jerusalem it took the persecution that fell upon the New Testament church in the city of Jerusalem to get them to actually do what God had called them to do. Maybe we are living in a time very much like that right now. Esther, let's talk about Esther for a moment. Let me tell you the story of her. Many of you know that she had a relative. Let me ask you some questions. That, or let me tell you some things and ask you some questions. Did you know that Esther was an orphan? Watch this. I'm going to... I'm going to ask you a question. You tell me the answer. Mordecai was Esther's what? Yeah, somebody said it right. You were in the first service, though. That didn't count. No, he was her cousin. Esther chapter 2, verse 7 says that he was the son of her father's, or of his, I've got to read it. I've got to remember it. She's his cousin. All right. All right. Her, uh, his father was her, somebody's uncle. <laughs> when you read Esther 2.7, you'll see that he's her cousin. He's her first cousin. The story goes like this, that 
the Persian Empire overwhelms the Babylonian Empire, and they take captives out of Israel, like all of these opposing, oppressing peoples did, and they took captives out of Jerusalem into their region. The king, who the Persian king is, the name he's also known by this Ahuerus that we hear. His name that you may have heard is Xerxes. He's the Persian king. His kingdom at the time is ruling the whole world. And they've taken captives from many different areas. One of his practices, one of the things that he liked to do, that King Xerxes liked to do, is he liked to bring all of his noblemen together, all of his counselors together. They would all come dressed in their finest robes, and they would have great, just great dinners. So they celebrated the greatness of their, of their rule. And in this particular story that's told in the book of Esther, he's having one of those dinners, and he decides as was, I'm assuming, was his practice. He wants his queen, her name is Vashti, or Vashti, depending on how you pronounce it. He wants her to come and to present herself. I have no doubt that she's done this before. And the practice was this, that she would adorn herself in her finest robes and all of her jewels, and she would come, she was a beautiful woman, and she would come and present herself before the king so that all of his noblemen and all of his guests could see how beautiful his queen was. And how beautifully she's adorned. They're having a particular dinner. And he, he asks, he sends word and he tells her, he commands that she will come and do that. Present herself before the king and all of his noblemen. And she says, I ain't coming. I don't know about all that. But in the Rhodes paraphrase, that's what she did. And it was a mistake. The king is greatly angered by it. And he removes her from her position. She's no longer the queen. He, he asks his counselors what should be done. And they say, King, issue a decree that the most beautiful young women from all across your reigning area, from all across the providences upon which you reign, that the most beautiful young women would be presented. We will put them through a, a course, a, a series of tests, and eventually they'll be presented to you. And you will pick from among them the one that will be the next queen. And so this edict goes out. The Persians didn't just pick from their own people. They picked from all of the nations that they reigned over as well. And one of the young women that is picked to be a part of that is Esther. In Hebrew, her name is Hadassah. Esther is the name that the Persians gave her. She goes through this process, she, she is presented, she is, literally there's a year where she's bathed in oil to soften her skin for, I think it's six months, it's a whole year process, and then a, another whole six months of processing before she ever appears, before she spends any time with the king. She eventually garners the favor of the man who is watching over the group of women that she's a part of. The Lord gives her favor in his eyes and he begins to sort of coach her on what to do and what to say and how to present herself. And eventually the time comes when she is presented to the king and his affections fall on her. The short of it is she's exalted and she becomes queen. You heard me say a moment ago, if you don't know this story, her first cousin, his name is Mordecai. Mordecai. He sits daily at the city gate, and one of the king's chief advisors is a guy named Haman, who comes in every day. 
He, he eventually comes to be, we believe, sort of the king's right-hand advisor, his chief advisor. And every day when he would walk through the gate of the city, all of those who sat at the gate would stand and bow before him except for one guy. Mordecai wouldn't bow. Many believe it was because of his Jewish frame of reference that Jehovah is God, you bow before no one else. But day after day, he wouldn't bow before Haman. And Haman became incensed. He became fixated upon Mordecai. He began to hate him in his heart, and he begins to devise a plan to get rid of him. Now, a couple of things. No one knows that Esther is a Jew. And he doesn't know that the guy that he hates is the cousin of the queen. Listen, if you're going to hate somebody, get your information straight, all right? <laughs> and he devises this plan to rid himself of this this one guy that just grates on him, he's fixated upon Mordecai and he can't stand that he won't bow. His ego consumes him and he comes up with a plan to get rid of him and what he decides to do is to start this rumor that the people of Mordecai are, are sort of insurrectionists, that they're going to start a rebellion, that they won't follow the teachings of the, and the edicts of the king and they won't bow and they don't do, and they're causing this turmoil in the people and Haman, who has the ear of the king, goes to him and he says, look, we need to get rid of these people. And eventually he convinces the king to do so. And the king signs a decree that on a particular day in the future, it's some time yet, all of the Jewish people would be exterminated over all of Persia. There's more to the story, but eventually the word of that gets to the queen. She goes to see Mordecai, and he is in, he's torn his clothes. He's wearing sackcloth. He's sitting, and he's mourning, and he's lamenting. And she tries to get him, don't do that. Listen, don't, don't, don't look that way. And he says, listen, I am mourning the people. And it's that moment that we come to Esther chapter 4, verse 14. You know these verses, perhaps. This verse is when, this is what Mordecai says to Esther. That's where we sort of begin this journey of a divine moment is often bigger than you think. He says this, For if you keep silent, if you don't say something, Esther, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. He knows, listen, God's going to have a people. He's not going to let Xerxes destroy all the Jewish people in Persia. He's not going to let him destroy all of the captives. But the question is, Esther, are you going to be used of God? Deliverance for the Jews will rise from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Now listen to this. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for just such a time as this. The scriptures are full of people for whom God has prepared a great plan, but in the moment they cannot see the scale of what God is doing. There's some things that I want you to understand. You see... Esther couldn't see what this is all about. I want you to walk back with me for a moment in time. And I want to give you a couple of steps to this. Number one, there is always more to God's plan than what you can see from a given moment. Did you hear me? There is always more to God's plan than what you can see in a given moment. We've already read and I've told you that Esther was an orphan. We don't know exactly how she got to be an orphan. Both her mother and her father have been killed. It's interesting to me that it's her cousin who is caring for her. 
her older cousin is now caring for her. That's not who's next in line in the Jewish tradition to care for a child when the parents die. Normally it would be the father's brother. Jewish families were large families. Normally it would be her uncle. It would have been Mordecai's dad that should have been caring for her. So we have to conclude this, that her uncle is dead as well. Here's what I want you to think about. She becomes queen, positioned by God to save the people of Israel. But when she is here, when she hears, and I can't give you the for instances of it. I don't know exactly how it happens. We know that they are taken captive. Suddenly there is this extermination of a lot of her family. Her mother and her father are killed. There are no uncles to care for her. There doesn't seem to be any father on her mother's side. There doesn't seem to be any of that generation. What happened to them? I conclude that in the captivity, in the battle, in the war that rages, when the Persians come to take the Israelites, all of her ancestry is killed. She's young. It wasn't that uncommon for an invading army to come in and kill all, sorry, of the older people and keep all the youth. (laughs) We don't know that that happens, but all of that generation, I want you to think about this. There's this young girl, this beautiful young girl. We don't know how young at that moment. She watches her mom die, and when she watches her mom die, she can't see the temple. When her dad, when word comes to her that your father, the the source of your strength, the source of your protection, the one who is to care for you, the one who will arrange and, and be a part of the selection of a husband for you, he's been killed. She can't see the palace when that happens. She can't feel the hand of God preparing her to save the whole nation of the Jews when she's grieving the loss of her mother and her father. When they take her and make her, when she's looking behind her at the city of Jerusalem in ruins and she's been taken to a foreign land, she can't feel you're going to be a queen. She's consumed with the pain. All she can see in that moment is, I got to wear a mask to go to church. She can see that maybe the providential hand of God is shaping the body of Christ to be something that it has never been, to move us out of our Jerusalem so that we might reach the lost, which has been our commission forever. She can't feel when she's sitting in the hospital room with her dying mom or the loss of a spouse or the loss of a job. She can't see that this is setting her up for the most powerful divine moment she's ever known. She can't feel that. She can't see it. She can't know it. When she knows that she's an orphan, and the only relative that she has that can express any concern for her is her cousin, and they're both captives, and how is this going to be something that's going to be good? How can God, surely God would have done something different. How did I end up here? I've been there. How about you? Maybe you're there right now. I want you to know that she can't see the palace through the tears she's shedding when her mother and father had died. Listen, have died. She can't hear Jeremiah 
she doesn't know that one day after her, there's going to be a prophet named Jeremiah and the Lord's going to speak to that prophet in Jeremiah chapter 29, the 11th verse. And he's going to say, for I know the plans I have for you, Esther. Listen, Bob, I know the plans. Jim, Sally, Mary, Joe, listen, I know the plans I have. Dennis, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for your welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. She can't see, she can't see that there's going to be a young man named David who's going to rise to the throne one day and he's going to pen in Psalm chapter 40 verse 5, you have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. You have multiplied the good stuff you have for me, Lord. I can't see it. Oh, Lord, there's just a giant named Goliath in my way. I can't see that one day I'll be king of the nation of Israel. And you can't see it. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them. Listen, yet they are more than can be told. You can't see it in the moment. You're holding on, trying to figure out which way to go, what to do, what to say, what to work at, how to earn a living. You can't see the palace from where you are. But I want you to know that there is always more to God's plan than what you can see from a given moment. Second, or let me just give you one more. Job, you know that guy, right? We're going to go through his story in this deal, but let me just give you one verse. Job, poor Job. How many tears did he cry? You ever cried so much you can't cry anymore? He just, he just, you ever been, you ever been sore right here from crying? You know what I'm talking about? Where the muscles in your ribs are sore? You've lamented so hard. Anybody? Where your back hurts from crying? No, just you, preacher. Well, I'm the only crybaby, ball baby in the place. The rest of y'all look at me. All you people online, amen, and dancing around your living room. This group in here, they're just looking at me right now. Thank you. All right, no. Listen. Listen to what Job said. This was said to him, Job chapter 8, verse 7, and though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. Anybody looking forward to some latter days? Amen. Anybody looking forward to a day that's enlarged? Listen, where, the, where your tents, there's a scripture that talks about how the tents, how the pegs of your tents are going to have to be pulled out because you can't contain all that the Lord's done for you. You're going to have to blow out the sides to your tent where the walls of your tent have been enlarged. You can't see all that from where you are. It's just hard. Secondly, let me tell you some things about that plan. That plan's going to accomplish God's desire and it's going to bless you. The plan of God will accomplish his desire and it will bless you. You can't see it right now, but the plan of God in your life will accomplish his desire and it will bless you. You say, I got a thousand questions. Hold on to them. There's coming a moment when you will see that God has accomplished his desire and he has blessed you. I don't know what job I'm going to work tomorrow. Hold on. You don't have to see it. God's desire will build his kingdom and it will bless you. I've got this thing going on in my body. I don't know what's going to happen. I want you to know that the plan of God will accomplish his desire and it will bless you and me. Amen? You see, our plans are too small for God. 
Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. We read it. I say it a lot. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all of those other things are going to be added to you. All of it. Worship team, would you come on back, please? So what do we do in the middle of it, though? What do we do in the middle of it? When you're you're living in it, when they're dragging you out of Jerusalem, when they're taking you to a foreign land, you don't know what's going to happen. You see, Esther presents a really interesting dilemma to Mordecai. She says, Mordecai, what you don't understand is that I can't just go in and talk to the king. I can't just go in, barge in, because there's a rule, and there was. If I go in and I've not been summoned, people that do that get killed. The law says this. If you barge into the king's presence and he hasn't summoned you, the assumption, the rule is you're put to death. The only way you get saved from that is that the king takes pity on you. He has compassion for you. And he takes his scepter. It's made out of gold. It's a little staff that represents his authority. And you've burst into his presence. He, if, if he doesn't extend that scepter to you, when he does that, that means that you can speak to him. But if he doesn't, they take you out and they cut your head off. And if I just burst into the king, there's a chance I die. And he says, listen, if you don't, Deliverance is going to come from someone else, and, you will, and you'll have missed what God's doing. And so she says, okay. She puts on her finest robes. She doesn't know how this story comes out. She just knows that the people of God have been threatened, that there's an edict, that they're all going to be killed in just a few days. And she knows that if that happens, she'll be found out, she'll be killed as well. So she puts her finest robes on and she gets ready and she barges in. I can't imagine but that, go ahead, Otis. People gasp. I guarantee everybody in the room is watching. But there was something that even she didn't count on. Xerxes loved her. And the minute she comes in, he doesn't want her to be worried about it for a second, it wouldn't seem. He instantly grabs his scepter and extends it to her and quiets the room and says, what? What what are you? And she 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 was weeping. And he said, what is... Everybody else disappeared in that moment and he fixed his eyes on, what do you need? And she tells him the story. He conspires with her and they have a dinner and they invite old Haman. He's built a gallows upon which he intends to, he's not going to just let Mordecai be killed like everybody else. He's going to make a spectacle of it and he's built a gallows that he's going to have Mordecai hung on. The king and Esther tell this story. The short of it is, eventually the king says, you, excuse me, Jim, you're Haman here for a second. 
you're the bad guy. Men, take him out. Hang him on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Turns out Mordecai had discovered a plot against the king and he had saved the king once before. And so the king takes the edict off of the Jews and he takes Mordecai in and he establishes him as his advisor. What do you do in the midst of it when you, when you don't know what's going to happen? What do you do when, you, when you're just living, when, when you just got drug out of Jerusalem, when, when you just lost that which is the most precious to you? What do you do when you, when you don't know what tomorrow holds? Point three, the secret is to just pursue the king. Pursue him. The rest will take care of itself. I don't even know what Proverbs 8, verse 17. Well, first of all, I mean, I'll finish that thought. Proverbs 8, 17, the Lord says, and they don't have this on the screen, so unless they put it on. The scripture says, I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. Pastor, what's going to happen in the election? What's that going to mean? Is this going to get worse? Is it going to get better? How long are we going to... Are people going to come back? People going to come back to church? I don't know. I can't tell you every step of this journey yet. I'm ready to take these ropes off. How about y'all? On the pews. I'm ready to throw these masks away. You know I mean? I'm ready for people that walk into banks with masks on. You know, those are, you know who those guys are, all right? I'm ready to be able to see people smile again. I'm ready to be able to smile at others. I can't tell you what tomorrow holds. Here's what I believe. The body of Christ is at a divine moment. You're at a divine moment. What are you going to do with it? You're going to be wrapped up in fear? constantly afraid I could die hey sweet baby I got news for you you're going to die you're gonna die no I'm holding up for the rapture well me too but what are we gonna do between now and then I think the ministry of the body of Christ ought to get going again how about you it may be different what do we do pastor what's the plan what's the roadmap? I don't know all of it yet I just know the first step pursue him to that end we won't do it tonight because we're doing the Panama deal but beginning next Sunday night and in the weeks to come very quickly we're going to outline a plan of prayer and fasting for our church we got to pursue him I can't tell you what the plan is going to look like yet I don't know I know that it begins by pursuing the king so to that end would you stand with me